we want to hear everybody's voice. It's all well saying that you believe in diversity and then only listen to yourself. That's Martin Mackay, co-founder of Rally Bio. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Martin. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Martin Mackay, co-founder and CEO at Rally Bio. Martin, how did you find yourself here at Rally Bio? Yes, indeed. Well, after a career which um, quite unbelievably goes back to the 70s when I joined the pharmaceutical industry, 1979, and I've been in the pharmaceutical industry since. I did a little bit more studying in the 80s and just really enjoy what I do. I love the industry. I love the notion of discovering and developing new medicines, you know, for patients with um, diseases. So in some ways it was a very natural thing to go into, um, you know, our own company, and I say our carefully, you know, three of us set it up. Um, after a year working in, you know, many years working in big pharma, and then working uh, for Alexion for five years, you know, a small biotech, and that really gave me a taste for, gosh, you know, could we do this ourselves and build a company, bring forward some medicines that were important and novel. So it was as simple as that, really, not a lot of deep thought, not a lot of, you know, decades of absolutely wanting to do this. Much more, you know, in the moment, this is the time to do it. What's it like to have the ultimate decision for these things? I know you're part of a team, but what's sure. it like? Yeah, it's quite, um, it's quite different. It is one of the enjoyable pieces. I, you know, I think, as I've mentioned before, in my career, I left school in 1972, 16-year-old. Um, from a very, um, you know, working class upbringing in Scotland. And over the course of my career, I've had 31 bosses. I can name them all. Uh, I, I, have, I have a list of them all named. Actually, just technically, it's 29 human beings because two people had to suffer me twice uh, in their career. So 29 human beings, 31 bosses. And I've learned a tremendous amount for them. And actually, as I write my memoirs, which I've started, I don't rate them 1 to 31, because they all had different skills, and some of them I'd, I'd rate high on leadership, some high on execution, some high on people and the like. So I have this wonderful grid of the 31 of them, all mapped out, and um, now I don't have that. Right, I don't have a, a boss to either work with or look up up to, and it's magnificent actually. I really enjoy it, and I've worked with great people, and we can go on to name them as really good people. People I've learned a lot from, people that cared for me, were enormously influential in my development. But this world is different, and it's really you know a very small company. We sit round a table like this and make decisions. It's a little bit cliched, but you can do things really quickly. And, and that manifests itself in so many ways as we're you know, thinking about the, the work that we're going to do, the diseases that we're going to work in, the types of things that are going to attack those diseases. But the simple answer to your question is, yeah, 31 was good, but that's enough for me. When you made that choice to, to head up a, a biopharma company, you must have had a lot of ones you looked at, a lot of places you kind of tried on in your own thinking. What was it about Rally Bio, the idea that you were going to form Rally Bio, that made you think, I can achieve with this what I want to achieve I might not have been able to someplace else? Yeah, it's a really good question. And 
Um, the little bit of history of, of Rally um, is that one of my co-founders and I, Steve Uden, another scientist who very steeped in pharmaceutical R&D, we had been talking about this for a wee while. Once we had, you know, once it was, you know, decided that we were leaving Alexi on, the question is, what, what next? I knew I wouldn't retire. That was not on the cards. My wife would never have allowed it. And so we actually looked at a lot of stuff. And what we decided to do was, let's both go out and look. And if there's anything, we'll keep each other in touch with things. And if there's anything that we see that we want to do, then we'll tell the other one and that's what we'll do. But always in the back of our mind was to start together and start you know, a company. Didn't know it was going to be Rally Bio, but start a company. And we looked at a lot of things. And in my own case, I looked at, you know, I was approached, um, and I say this not immodestly, but I was approached for jobs in big pharma, things that like I'd done in the past, all the way down to twinkles in people's eyes to set up a new company with their idea or with their money. And each time Steve and I came back together, we'd say it isn't better than starting our own company with our ideas and raising our own money and doing it. And that's basically it happened over about, you know, six months to a year. And then we landed on, OK, we, we want to, you know, start our own company. What was very clear to us were the areas that we wanted to work in. So it wasn't like we, we thought of a million things and chose one. Um, at Alexion, we really like the commitment to devastating diseases. We really like the commitment to ultra-rare or rare disease, you know, patients that are just poorly served just now. And we really like the idea of bringing forward medicines from, you know, probably late research, early clinical, and all the way to the market. And so what we wanted to work on was quite clear how we would then go about it, where we'd set up and all of those things. And the name Rally Bio is a good example of that. We had been thinking about names. Um, we didn't hire any really smart people to help us with that. It was just then three of us, because Jeff Fryer on the business side had joined us then. Um, and one day Steve was on one of his uh, very typical rants and he was ranting about, we're going to rally people around this company and, you know, fight disease and conquer disease. And he was really on his platform and um, doing a great job. And when he said rally, and he looked at me and we looked at each other and thought, that's a good name. So it was all down to Steve. Steve came up with rally. I added bio. And um, it just made sense to us. And truly that says a lot. We are trying to rally people around this mission of coming up with medicines for really bad diseases and for patients that don't have medicines today. You know, when I think of rally, I think of a team. It's hard to rally by yourself, I guess. So that must be part of the fun of it, putting the team together. Definitely. And, you know, through our careers, we had worked with just such great people, really lucky to work with such good people in such great companies and you know, despite the kind of press that's often levelled against the pharmaceutical industry, by far and away the vast majority of people I worked with wanted to come up with good medicines. Mostly R&D, but not exclusively. People all over the company on this mission. 
And so, you know, we had worked with great people and, you know, we're pleased to say that, you know, although small just now, we've attracted them. And all of those people had options. They could all, you know, choose where they wanted to work and that. And so small team just now, but we'll grow over the next period and, you know, keep that level of talent up. Everybody's very dedicated to this mission. That's why they really joined. I'd love it to think it was my charisma, um, but truly it was new medicines. And I know from reading, I'm thinking back to one of the, maybe the very first press <coughs> release I saw that you put out that where it said, or maybe it was a Hartford newspaper article, mm. but it basically said something like, Martin says he's got at least one good medicine left in him. I don't know. A number of people commented on that from kind of strange places would write and say, yeah, just A, it just sounded like you, and you've got more than one left in you. Get going. What are you, what are you waiting on? And so just that one little phrase kind of summed us up as well. We think we have, and Steve's in exactly the same position, and Steve Ryder, who joined us, who's another colleague that we work together in, in past companies, you know, just has that same belief. There's medicines left in us. And it's almost like, I, I like to think of it as a time to harvest. You know, we've made lots of mistakes in our careers. There's been too many failures to mention. Fortunately, there's been some good things as well, but a lot of failure and, and kind of where our experience is now should help us. We won't be immune to failure, but we think if we really apply the knowledge and the experience that we have, have a diverse group of people in the company, diversity uh, is important to us, and then I do think there's some medicines in there. I was, um, I read an article recently, as you know I'm a big fan of the New England Patriots, and I can truly say I supported them when they were bad. So I started watching them 99-2000 and um, Tom Brady in an article recently when people were saying to him, why, why aren't you retired? I mean, your age and all you've done. And he said, why would I retire at the time when I really by now think I know what I'm doing and actually can apply all of that to every game and be even better? And I thought, yeah, that kind of sums up rally a little bit. Why would you stop doing this at a time where you think you're best placed to bring great medicines forward. What's it like to actually be the guy? Yeah, interestingly, we don't kind of work that way in this company. It's, it's interesting, we never use titles. The only time, the only reason I have the title CEO is for legal purposes. You need, a, you need it for, you know, to do your jobs I and mean, you need to sign things and that. But actually if you if you looked at my business card, there's nothing on it about titles. None of us have titles. We've tried to really diminish the hierarchy in the company. We want to hear everybody's voice. It's all well saying that you believe in diversity and then only listen to yourself. You know, and I've seen that in the past, you know, leaders and bosses that took up far too much of the airtime. And so I don't want to be like that, and, and we don't want to be like that. We really want to have it. Now we realise sometimes there's decisions to be made and we take those, we take them quickly. Um, but by and large, the way that we work in the company is to you know, get the ideas on the table, debate them, challenge them, and then make decisions and move on. Um, we make decisions in different ways, but we're always upfront about how we're going to make decisions, whether it's this is a consensus decision. This actually is yours, Steve. There was one this week where I said, 
your decision, Steve, and so on and so forth. So try not to, um, you know, bring that. I don't know how scalable that is, and it maybe is. I, I it'll be really interesting as we grow how far we can take this. But certainly at the moment, that's that's how we work, and how that manifests itself day to day. Then is, you know, we're actively scouting new assets and truly globally. Uh, we had people in Korea the week before last, but people in the Nordics last this week. I was in Boston, going to Europe next week. So we're really looking globally. And day on day, it's, you know, head down to the grindstone looking at these assets. Now that we've done our first deal, then a percentage of that will be executing against those assets. But we'll still be very actively scouting. Um, what makes it really fun is that it's it's all to do with science and drug discovery and drug development just now. We clearly, we need to be um, fiscally responsible and uh, Jeff plays that role just brilliantly for us. Clearly with our board and our investors, we're very responsible how we're using you know, their money that they've generously provided to us um, to run the company. But the vast majority of the day is to do with science and drug development. And for someone like me, it's, well, it's golden. Uh, I asked John Houston a similar question, Martin, and he, I said something like, so it sounds like part of the, the fun of it is to be a scientist who is in collaboration. He said, yeah, it's funny you should mention that. He said, because scientists, we're in our own world. Did you go through that as you learned how to be a... Yes. A leader? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's sort of academia, and I think it's the same in the United States. I did all my, you know, academic work in the United Kingdom, and, um, I mean, you're really trained to go alone. In fact, whilst in those days you may have collaborated with laboratories outside, the person at the opposite side of the bench was often competing. And so, you know, this notion of teamwork and that didn't come into it. That's the wonderful thing about industry, actually. You cannot do, you cannot be the lone ranger in industry. You have to collaborate both within the company and outside of it. And these skills are kind of honed over the years. Not everybody adapts them well, though. I have to say, and there's some, luckily, there's some um, great scientists who even in industry maintain that level of uniqueness. <laughs> you know, you just have to work with that and manage it accordingly. Usually it's worthwhile because they're great scientists and you know every so often you need to have a discussion about working together but <laughs> as as a leader you don't have that luxury. You have to you know really collaborate across many groups. So in this time of, of being a leader, making a transition from being a scientist exclusively to being a leader and a scientist, what have you learned about what works for you as a manager? Do you, do you feel like you have a style or an approach that you learn works for you? Yeah, I was really lucky. I was talking about this earlier today, actually. Somebody um, that I'd worked with uh, called me and they were trying to make a decisions about two positions that were taken. And I just, I thought back and another wonderful thing about our industry and working for big companies is how much they were willing to invest in you. So if I think about my days at Sibagaygi in Switzerland and you know Pfizer in the UK and the US, invested an enormous amount in my training. And you know, as, as scientists, you have your scientific training, 
But then you go into a company and they say, now we're going to make, you know, try and help you be a leader. And so I was offered so many courses and programs and really wonderful things to, you know, build your leadership skills. And, you know, simply put, the, the more that I try and understand leadership, I worked out one day that there's an algorithm that I'm working on in terms of my leadership trajectory. And by the time I'm 80, I'm going to be really good. And the challenge for me is, can I do it in my own lifetime and be really good? So leadership is something that I think about daily. Um, in terms of working with people, it's some real old adages, you know, just treat people well, just think about them as um, human beings and what they're going through day and day. Um, the other, the obvious parts of leadership that you hear are, you know, set a vision, give people a direction to go to, but that, that's kind of textbook. Underneath all that is working with human beings and how you interact with them and, you know, over a career you can put hand on heart and say, wow, you know, as I think about it, I'd like to think I helped more people than I ever hindered. Uh, people developed that when we worked together and that continues to this day. You know, people in a small company like Rally, I still think about them a lot in their development. We're at different stages. Um, but it's kind of some really fundamental things, but I wouldn't dismiss the training that I was offered and lapped up and, and to this day continue to think about leadership and improving as a leader, being a better leader. So can you remember when you were eight or nine? Can you remember what your image of yourself was? Can yeah, yeah, I can actually, and it's pure luck if you think about it, because how do you... How do you have these images that actually come to fruit as being a scientist? I mean, I played, I played soccer and still do all my life. So, you know, always this notion of playing for Juventus in Italy has, and I haven't given up on that actually. I still think I'd be good enough, but unfortunately they don't. But on a, on truly on a, a kind of life thing, I always wanted to be a scientist. This notion of white coats and glasses, I was intrigued by and kind of nerdy professor. And again, luckily in the UK, the BBC invariably had programmes about scientists and I was totally compelled by it. So literally left school at 16 to become a scientist. And you might say, well, that's a bit weird leaving school at 16, but everybody did from, you know, nobody in my family went to college, university, none of my friends went to college or university. It just wasn't, you know, where I was brought up. It just didn't happen at all. And so, but what did happen is you left school at 16 and you went and usually to apprenticeships usually so people would become carpenters or electricians and very similarly in, in laboratory work there's an apprenticeship you go in and you become a what at the time was called a junior medical laboratory technology technologist or technician and I did that and you go to college uh, to do day release it's called so part of your education about learning and I went into a bacteriology laboratory so this was the best job I could ever have right I've thought about it for years um, I've, I've studied at school like all my subjects at school were science so it was chemistry biology physics math statistics you know so very scientific um, you know high school and then I find myself in the job I want as a lab technician doing lab work, playing with my hands and fume cupboards. Um, luckily, I had qualifications um, 
from school, even though I was 16, I was, I was able to get enough qualifications that you could go to college. So that by the time 18 comes in, I'm looking around and everybody in the good jobs had degrees, which I didn't really understand truly what a degree was. But what I didn't know is everybody in the big job had, and I thought, yeah, I'd like some of that. And so at 18, I went to university, had the qualifications, full-time university. And then I did my four years, um, my microbiology degree in Edinburgh and then went into the industry, pharmaceutical industry, which I knew that's where I wanted to apply my science. This is 1979 now. And then really enjoyed working there as what was called a graduate. You know, you had your first degree, worked as a you know, graduate, working on penicillins, antibi antibiotics. And exactly the same thing happened. I looked around and all the people in the best positions had PhDs or were physicians. All the big jobs were there, and I thought, oh, yeah, okay. Then I went, did my PhD, postdoctoral work, to get these qualifications. Then I went back into industry, this time with Siba Geige, the Swiss company. And by that time, you've got all the academic piece behind you. Um, then it's a case of building a career in industry. But it does go back to being a, a wee boy in Scotland, loving this notion of science. It's an unbroken line. I don't think I'm anybody quite like that. That's interesting. No, no, it goes really way back, uh, way back, and just really lucky to, at 16, to work in a lab, right? I mean, this was perfect for me, and for all I knew, this was going to be my life, working in a lab for a whole career until other things came into play, like gosh, I really like that job there. This person's directing things and, and, and probably had some, something inside me to say that I wanted to lead things without really ever being able to articulate it. It was much more experiential. There's a person in a job that I like the look of and to get there, you need qualifications. You need your PhD, you need to do your scientific apprenticeship. But yeah, very lucky to want to do something and see it all the way through. Here I am today, still doing it, right? Sitting in a lab, thinking about experiments and... <laughs> You're lucky guy. It's, yeah, lucky or sad. <laughs> Maybe a bit of both. <laughs> What's new at Rally Bio? You know, I think by, um, you know, in the next few months, I'd like, we've, as I say, we've completed our first deal, and although we haven't broadcast it, it's a highly competitive area, and we want to keep it, I think the euphemism is in stealth mode just now, so we won't be broadcasting our first assets as it happens, it's a, it's a number of them that we've brought in, uh, I'd, I'd like to think we'd do another uh, couple of deals. Uh, we always set out to say that our portfolio would be somewhere between 40 assets. We can manage that, so I'd like to think that we're at that number. Um, that we would have hired a few more scientists um, to work alongside us to produce uh, those medicines. And then if you think about uh, the balance between scouting for assets and executing against development plans will be much more the latter. So I think there'll be a really big transition in the company. We like the scouting piece, we like going out, doing diligence on assets and thinking about how they could be used in clinics and, and uh, the likes, but very quickly we're going to have to transition into actual execution, so actually doing something, that should be fun. Um, we'll still always scout, 
because if we see things we want to bring them into the uh, company but I think the balance will then move to execution. When people now ask you who is Rally Bio? Yeah I know Rally Bio works on devastating diseases and come up with transformative treatments I mean it's as simple as that easy to say of course to execute is a bit more difficult but really bad diseases really great treatments we haven't moved from that we've moved our thinking about how you do it at what stage you do it maybe who you need to work with you to you know execute against plans but fundamentally the notion is bad diseases great treatments when you make that explanation you just gave to me that simple clear here's what rally bio is Maybe you made a presentation for a half an hour at a conference or something, and someone comes afterwards, back afterwards over coffee and says, oh, thanks, Martin, now I understand, but they didn't. Yeah. They either didn't hear it right or they had filters on. What do they hear wrong? And then when you come back and say, oh, no, it's actually this, what's that conversation like? It's really interesting. We've had that conversation. So, I mean, there are some within that grand really bad diseases, really good treatments. We've put some filters in. So one would be um, therapeutic areas that we work in. Uh, whilst we're largely agnostic to therapeutic areas, and if you think about ultra-rare disease, they could go from metabolic, neurological, bone, you know, you name it, it trans, you know, it goes across a lot of therapeutic areas. We decided early on that we wouldn't work in oncology. Um, and it's a couple of reasons where, you know, I don't think the world needs another oncology company. Um, I don't think we'd be best placed to bring forward oncology agents. I think there are people a lot better than us um, um, to do that. And from a scientific perspective, it's difficult to conceive of too many things that are to truly transformative. It's happening, but, but not kind of doesn't tick that big box. But interestingly, as we go through this with uh, all sorts of people, you know, from scientists, lay scientists, physicians, venture capitalists, you name it, they'll invariably, after us going through this pitch, say, oh, I've got this oncology program that I think you'd be interested in. So we've really had to work on clarity a lot more. And, and we joke about when, when Steve, you know, goes through it now, he'll say, but not oncology. I want to make sure not oncology. So sometimes folks, you know, because oncology is such a big area to work in, um, but really it comes down to our communication and how well we do that. And, and it's not something that we've given enough thought to yet, uh, but we have to get better at doing that. When you decided to build this whatever it was going to be called, uh, I'm sure you thought about it could be in Silicon Valley, it could be in London, yep. it could be wherever. Yeah. How did you go about choosing where you are? Yeah, I mean, some of us have been in, I talk personally, I've been in Connecticut for 20 years now, worked for um, three companies during that time over the 20 years, and I just think it's a really great place to discover medicines. Lots of medicines have been discovered in Connecticut, so that's good, you know, in great companies, Pfizer, Bristol-Myers, Boehringer, Ingelheim, Bayer, Alexion. Um, so inherently, this is a good place to discover medicines. The talent is outstanding, and uh, when Steve and I were conceiving the company, we did think about, you know, some investors wanted us to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, without doubt. Some wanted us to be in New York, probably mostly in Cambridge, Boston, and environs. Um, 
But we thought, you know, you go to New London Rail Station on a Monday and see all these people training it up to stay the week in Boston. There's something wrong there. They should be staying here. And so uh, we thought, great place to discover medicines, great talent here. We live here, you know, although we're, as you can tell, not from Connecticut originally, um, you know, made homes here. Why not? And that's kind of what's born out. I think out of the eight of us, something like seven of us would be in Boston by now had Rally not started, including myself. I think the state could do a lot more um, to really encourage the life sciences, a lot more. Now we're sitting in the tip incubator here, which is terrific. I mean, the people here couldn't have been better. Stafford, um, Paul couldn't have been more welcoming to us here as a small startup. But already we're outgrowing here. I mean, if you're successful, you're going to outgrow quickly. And, you know, hence our move. We, we'd like to absolutely keep a presence here um, in, in the incubator. But, you know, we're going to outgrow now and we're be going to be looking for new premises, new laboratories, more people. And there's essentially nothing welcoming about the state to be able to do that. Whether it's politics, I don't understand. But if I think about... Um, you know, the interactions I have with MassBio, for example, and what they've done in there, and it wasn't always like that. I mean, I first moved a, a lab to Cambridge in 1997-98, and we were only one of two big companies, I think, at the time there. But if I think of how that's grown, I think, why, why shouldn't that be Connecticut? But there's too little in place to really incentivize people. I'd hate to think down the line that we're going to move to Massachusetts or even San Francisco, but it's possible. It's possible and the politics of it, you know, the finances, the incentives, all of that will dictate. So I think the um, government, um, the, the, the local government could do a lot more. Connecticut innovations have been terrific. Um, they've actually invested in us and they've invested in many companies here and I couldn't say, you know, better things about them but there's more to it than this level of investment. It's needing much more vision about the state and life sciences. Being really political, it's all too self-congratulatory that we're a great place without the incentives really to grow here and build here and actually grow back the base that we had here. You know, thousands of jobs are flooded out and that's, that just is, is shameful, I think. And so I would, I would actually be happy to help in that, although I suspect I'm far too outspoken to ever get invited to do so. When, when I first started work, working with you, uh, one of the things that really stood out was how willing you were to ask for an honest conversation and use the term courageous conversation. What's that mean? Sure. Yeah, I used that. Probably the first time you heard it was in a town hall at Alexion, which was the one ask that somebody said, if you had one ask, what would it be? It'd be for people to go back to their labs and offices and have the courageous conversation with their colleagues. You know, it's really simple. It's, um, you know, as, as human beings to both get feedback, receive feedback and give it, it's a really hard thing to do. And it's way harder than I think it should be. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And in our environment at Raleigh, with only eight of us, we built that from the start. So Steve Yoon was giving me feedback this morning, and I'm thinking, I don't really want this on a Friday morning, but 
I welcomed it with open arms and, and, and he started it by saying in the spirit of openness I'd like to have a courageous conversation with you and do it. Just makes it really easy. It allows people to develop and grow. Um, there's, a, there's an adage that came from Jack Welsh, who's not my favourite guru, but he said many good things, as, you, as everyone knows. And one thing he said was, tell the people the truth because they know it anyway. And yet we've been often in leadership resistance to give that truth and that feedback. There's a lot of courage associated with being able to do it. I guarantee that if anybody's listening to this, it gets easier to do it each time you do it. And people will thank you so much for it. Maybe not immediately, because it can be hard, but will definitely thank you in terms of thinking about their careers. Martin, thanks for spending time with me today. Thank you. One of the really satisfying things about working with Martin is his plain spoken approach. In our conversation, he mentions the advice, tell the people the truth because they already know it. In the same way, when Martin says at the beginning of the podcast, we want to hear everybody's voice. It's all well, saying that you believe in diversity and then only listen to yourself. He's getting at something real, the power of what he calls a courageous conversation. For Martin, that means not only giving feedback, but being willing and able to receive it all in the spirit of making things work better. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss.